please come, Lord Jesus. Come, King Jesus. Come soon, I pray. Yet even still, come now, Holy Spirit, until such time we need You. As the banked fish gasp for that which without he shall surely die, so too do we gasp for living water fused with crimson that flows freely from the life's pierced hands. The people of Sandy Hook assuredly cannot endure without your supernatural grace. Give them grace and comfort, pressed down and running over. There are things so wicked we cannot bear. There are things manifestly beyond our understanding. Things of which, and perhaps for our own sake, you have kept from our grasp. Such a thing as this. We cry out, Abba, Father. Torrents, we weep for the family of Sandy Hook. Our soul groan for the people of Sandy Hook. Our spirits are broken for the babes of Sandy Hook. Hold them close, dear Alpha and Omega, the great I Am. Comfort them. Love them. You are the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through you. Show this to all who live in flesh but are dead in spirit. Show them life and death, that life is in you. Reveal truth and life in the spirit despite the death in the flesh. You are the way. Pull near to your bosom forever the precious slain of Sandy Hook. Let our lips say, O death, where is your sting, even until our hearts believe it. There is no hope save you, O Christ. Save us, you alone. Evil triumphs, so it seems, sovereign Lord. Do they mock you? So they try. But you won't be mocked. Let us rest assured the vengeance is yours, Christ Jesus. Darkness consumed this man And so he did the liar's bidding, Satan's work, cowards. He has not escaped your justice. The enemy of your world will not escape your justice. For your bounty of blood, who can escape your justice? Yet, for those who believe, Satan's ransom is paid in full. Let us even now hear the laughter of our beloved Sandy Hook babes, hidden most high, while at length they play together joyfully at your nail-pierced feet. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for John 1.1, which proclaims, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Thank you that the Word is with the bereaved of Sandy Hook. Thank you, Jesus. As Matthew said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. O Christ, give rest to the most weary and burdened of Sandy Hook. Thank you, Lord, that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Only you can comfort beyond worldly comfort. Comfort them, King Jesus, we plea. We wait upon you, Lord Jesus. We will remain still until you you return, King Jesus. And you will return. Oh, how you will return. It is in Jesus' name, the name above all names, the name in which demons shudder and both saints and angels, we rejoice and pray. Amen.
message this morning is the Christmas hope, the hope of Christmas prophecies. And as we look at the prophecies during this time, you know, the purpose of prophecy is this. It's to give hope to the believer. It's to give hope so that we know that God is still in control, that we know this is not the end. It is to give hope so that we can see that God is ultimately in control, that He has an ultimate plan. Even though evil may come, though we may suffer much. And as these prophecies were written to people who were struggling and who, who were suffering all throughout the ages, we can begin in the book of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. And Paul in Romans chapter 16 and in verse 20 goes back and affirms this promise. This principle, this passage. Matter of fact, the song that we just heard, uh, the violin play, Heart the Herald Angels Sing. Charles Wesley, when he wrote this song, had a verse that was specifically dedicated to this passage of Scripture. And it's not one that we sing in our churches. Matter of fact, it's not in hardly any of the hymn books. You have to go and find an ancient hymn book to find it uh, because there were about six verses to that song. But here's a verse that we seldom, if ever, sing that Charles Wesley wrote in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Come, desire of nations, come, fix us in thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise us in the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Heart the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. In Genesis chapter 3, the first promise that was given after the fall. The first gospel, so to speak. It goes like this, and you've probably read it before. You've seen it a hundred times, and we can just gloss over it. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, let's look at this carefully. Between you and the woman, and between her seed and your seed. We know that the ultimate seed is Christ. We know that the ultimate lineage of Eve will be Christ. And the Bible says that there will be enmity between them. The Bible also says that he will strike your head. Now, what's interesting, I remember Tommy Nelson uh, preaching this when I was serving with him, that he is the singular masculine pronoun, speaking of a specific he. He will strike your head. Speaking of Christ, speaking towards Satan, he will strike your head. And you will strike his heel. Now, we know that Satan strikes his heel, that Satan continually seeks to strike evil upon mankind. And his ultimate example was when Jesus Christ was crucified. 
but it was just the heel of Christ. Many of you probably saw the passion of the Christ. And before Jesus leaves the garden, you see this particular passage alluded to when he crushes the head of the serpent. And that's what Paul says in Romans 16.20, that ultimately his head will be crushed. You will strike his heel. He will be tortured. He will be hung upon a cross. And you will bruise him, but you will not defeat him. But ultimately, you will be defeated. It's the story of the first gospel, the first promise, the first prophecy. We move on over to Genesis chapter 17. In verse 3, it says, Then Abraham fell to the ground as God spoke with him, and as for me, my covenant is with you, and you will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram, but your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. Nations, And I will make you extremely fruitful and you will make nations and kings come from you. And I will keep my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Your offsprings, many nations will come and many nations will experience this covenant that I'm making with you. Let me just stop for a moment here. How many of you are from Irish descent? Raise your hand. All right, how many of you have an Italian descent? How many of you are of German descent? How many of you are Jewish descent? We got one. What are the rest of you doing here? This promise was made to the Jews. But do you know what's wonderful about this promise? He said that I will make this promise to your offspring. That many nations will come and taste of this promise. Isn't that wonderful? And that was foretold thousands of years ago. Let's continue to look at prophecy that's been given to us here. If you go to uh, the, the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel. This is 1700 years before the, excuse me, 700 years before the time of Christ. 700 years before. There will come of a virgin, one whose name is Emmanuel. God with us. God will be with us. Continue Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us, and the government will be placed on his shoulders, and his name will be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Mighty God? Eternal Father? Those are names that are used exclusively for God. God with us. God has come to us. What a great prophecy. Nearly 700 years before Christ would come. How about this one? Micah 5, 2. Bethlehem Ephratah. Now, what's really amazing about this prophecy is there were two Bethlehems at this time in ancient history. And Micah, about 600 years before Christ comes, specifies which Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephratah. That's the Bethlehem where Christ will be born. You are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you. 
to be the ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity. It's from eternity. He has no beginning. He has no ultimate end. Amazing when you stop and think about it. That ought to resonate hope within our spirits when we think about it. That God knew. That God has always had a plan for deliverance. God has always been in control. And though we don't understand it, though we don't get it, though it doesn't make sense, we know that ultimately He reigns. Now, that is good news for those of us who are believers, and that's good news for those of us who are sitting in this room this morning. But we also recognize that there are those who are suffering. And when they hear the Christmas story this year, and maybe it's even some folks in this room, when you hear the Christmas story and you hear about the celebration of joy, for some of you, and for many, they may think, yeah, the Christmas story, that's not really in touch with where I am right now. The, all the joy and the goodness. But what about real life? What about life in Newton, Connecticut today? Let me read to you another prophecy. Let me read to you a part of the Christmas story that we never read during Christmas. Because quite frankly, it's kind of morbid. And we try to leave morbid things out of Christmas. But this is a part of the story. Just so you know that we don't serve a God who doesn't understand. And in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2, then Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Here's the story. Hundreds of children, not just in Bethlehem, but in that surrounding area, are murdered, are killed. And then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and she suffered to be consoled because they were no more. Now let's go back to who Rachel is. Rachel is the woman who married Jacob. Remember, we had Abraham, who we read as the father of the, the Jewish nation. And the covenant was made with him. Then he has a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob. And Jacob wasn't the firstborn, but uh, he was the secondborn. He was basically twins with Esau. And you know the story of how he robbed him of his inheritance and had to leave. And when he left... He went to live with his uncle Laban. And there while with Laban, he met actually one of his distant cousins and he fell in love with her. Her name, if you'll remember, was Rachel. Now, he got tricked into Leah at first, but then he had to work an additional seven year, years for Rachel. And though Leah had many children, Rachel couldn't have children. And she wept and she cried and she begged God. And finally, after many years, Rachel has a child. Joseph, we know the story of Joseph. But then, ironically, on her way 
to Bethlehem. On the road to Bethlehem, she, God has blessed her with another child. And she goes into labor on the road to Bethlehem and dies, giving birth to Benjamin. She dies right there, weeping. And then about a thousand years later, in Jeremiah chapter 31, we see the story of how the children of Israel are being led out from Jerusalem. It's been under siege and many are literally starving. Many have died and they're placed on a road. They're placed in a city called Ramah, which, by the way, is on the road to Bethlehem, to Jerusalem, about 30 miles away from um, from the Bethlehem area, 30 to 40 miles away from the Bethlehem area. And Rachel, uh, this prophecy, Jeremiah reads this prophecy about Rachel. A voice was heard in Ramah and weeping and great mourning as Rachel weeps for her children and refuses to be consoled. As literally thousands and thousands of people would die. Thousands of sons and daughters would die. And you see the typology and then we come 700 years later to Matthew chapter 2 that we just read. You see, the fact of it is, is God does know. He, he knows evil exists. He knows what's coming. He knows what will occur. He knows that Satan is continually striking at mankind. Seeking to strike and crush us, but he strikes the heel. But ultimately, God will crush evil. Not on this earth. It'll be on a new earth that God will create for all who know Him. But in the meantime, we live in this fallen and sinful world, don't we? So what do we do with struggles like Sandy Hook Elementary? How do we handle that? Well, here's the first thing that I would tell you that it's okay to do. The first thing that's, that's all right is to struggle. And maybe you have uh, maybe you have some personal struggles. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've gone through the, the death of a marriage. Maybe you've lost a child or a spouse or a parent. Can I tell you it's okay to struggle? Matter of fact, you probably don't remember this, but I taught on this a few years ago. Does anybody remember what Jacob's name is changed to by God? Israel. And what does Israel mean? It means one who struggles with God, one who wrestles with God, as Jacob literally wrestled with him. As David in the Psalms, we see wrestling with him. As Jeremiah's wrestling. As we see just about every great man in the Scripture wrestle. You know what? What God doesn't want us to do is just go, I don't believe it. I'm running away. I'm not going to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. He doesn't want us to try to get him off the hook and try to make it all right and make it easy and glossy. No, we have to wrestle with this. And the truth of it is, until we really wrestle with our faith, it's not our faith. It's one that we've just adopted. It's one that we've just associated with. So it's okay to wrestle. It's okay to ask the hard questions. But don't stop there. Matter of fact, I can tell you there are plenty of parents, whether they're believers or not, that are wrestling this morning. And if you were in their shoes, you would be wrestling right now too. And you know what i got good news for it. That's okay. Feel free to wrestle with God. He's big enough. He can handle it. Number two, believe that He is ultimately in control 
and believe that he ultimately will give a perspective. It probably won't be on this earth. He has a perspective that you and I don't. And though he did not cause this to happen, he is ultimately in charge of what happens. And we have to wrestle through that. That he has a perspective, that he has an eternal perspective that we cannot see or many of us cannot even begin to fathom. But we know that ultimately he is in control and that he has a a perspective that's not just for now, but that is forever. And thirdly, pray. We seek his heart. We struggle with him. We believe though we struggle. We pray. And we go back to the promises that the God who foretold the tragedies of the past and the tragedies of the future is the same God who sent his son to suffer every known oppression we could ever imagine, to suffer torture, to suffer alienation, to suffer not because of what he did wrong, but because of what he did right, and to suffer on our behalf. So we struggle, we pray, but we believe, though we not, though we cannot understand. I want to give you just a few more scriptures to remember as we seek to believe in a time that is difficult, as we seek to bring praise, as we seek to understand prophecies that let us know that God is not only in control, but He understands where this is all going. Prophecies that foretell what would happen to Jesus Christ hundreds of years before He ever came. In Jeremiah 23.5 and Psalms 89, just prophesied that the Messiah would come from the house of David. In Isaiah 29.18, that He would open the eyes of the blind. In Isaiah 35, He will perform many miracles. In Isaiah chapter 50, He would be beaten and spat upon. In Isaiah chapter 53, He would not open His mouth to defend Himself. And also in Isaiah 53, He would be numbered with the transgressors, with those thieves upon the cross. That He would be buried with the rich. Because Joseph of Arimathea came and requested his body. Joseph of Arimathea, who was of the Sedhedric Council, requested his body. And he was buried in a rich man's tomb. This was foretold nearly 700 years before Christ would come. A messenger will prepare the way for him. And we know that was John the Baptist in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and in Malachi 3, 1. He will come while the temple of Jerusalem is still standing, Malachi tells us. In 70 A.D., the temple is destroyed. He will enter Jerusalem riding a donkey. Zechariah chapter 9. The betrayal money will be cast upon the temple floor. Zechariah 11. The money will be used to buy a potter's field. The money that Judas took to betray Christ, if you'll remember, he threw upon the floor. And when the Pharisees gathered it up, they said, it's blood money. What can we do? And they took it and they bought a potter's field. Field with it. He will be betrayed, Psalms 41 tells us, and it also tells us he will be betrayed by a friend. His hands and feet would be pierced, 
in Psalm 22. And you know what's remarkable about Psalm 22, who foretells what will happen as far as the crucifixion, is that crucifixion has not even been invented at this point. It, it will be another three to four hundred years before the Romans will start to use crucifixion as a torturing device. His bones will not be broken, according to Psalms 34. They will divide his clothing and cast for lots in Psalms 22. He will be given vinegar and, and gall to drink in Psalms 69. He will say, my God, my God, why has that forsaken me? He will not decay, Psalm 16. He will ascend into heaven, Psalm 68. And he will speak in parables in Psalms 78. Hey, we may struggle. We may pray. But we can believe that God is sovereign. That he knows what we're experiencing today. That he has made a way to ultimately end all suffering for all who will believe and trust and call His name. You know, I know it's still difficult and it's still hard. You may run into people that that's not enough. And they may question, why God? I want to read to you something that John Stott wrote. It's a short play and I want you to just read the end of this. It's a picture of those who one day come before the judgment of God. And with that thought in mind, I want to read this. And it helps, I believe, to understand where God is and who He is. Those who are waiting for judgment before the throne of God. At the end time, billions of people were scattered on the great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back, but some near the front talked heatedly with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror and beating and tortures and death. And another group, a young black boy, lowered his collar. What about this? He demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynch for no crime but being black. Far across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and the suffering he permitted in this world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all the sweetness and light existed, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that men had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they thought. So each of these groups sent forth their leaders, Chosen because they had suffered the most. A Jew, an African American, a person from Hiroshima, a deformed child. And in the center of this, they plainly consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. And it was a rather clever case. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, He must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man, lest lest he be born also a Jew. Let his legitimacy be questioned and doubted. Give him work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Let him be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. 
Let him be tortured. And at last, let him see what it means to really be alone. Let him die. And as he dies, let there be no doubt that everyone is watching. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. And as each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went throughout the throngs of people. And when the last had finished pronouncing his sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served his sentence. Let's pray. Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling with whether God is even real. You're certainly struggling with the thought of Christ. Your thoughts struggling with where is he and what kind of God could he be if he allows tragedies like this to occur. And you know what? God is big enough to handle your struggles. Engage him. Wrestle with Him. Search His Scriptures. Read them. And if you read them entirely, you'll see that there's been suffering in every generation. That the righteous have suffered all through history. Often only because they were righteous and innocent. And God in His infinite mercy and grace, seeing this suffering that has come by ultimately the sin of mankind came to earth in the flesh to suffer every pain known to mankind, to endure torture, not because of what He had done, but because of what we had done. So that He would know and empathize and relate and resonate, so that we could resonate and understand that He was one of us. He became one of us, not because He needed to or had to, but because He loved us. So that when we say, where are you, God? You can say, I'm the same place I was when my son was suffering and dying upon a cross. Innocently, but righteously for our salvation. So in times like this, when we don't have easy answers, nor should we try to give any, we can know that your word is true. That you have suffered before us. That you are suffering with us now. That you hurt with us. But that you ultimately will redeem this pain and this suffering. For all who will trust you as Savior and Lord. That there will be a day that we will all stand before you God. and For all who have suffered and struggled in life. You will redeem each and every pain for those who've trusted you as Savior. But Lord, I pray that you help those who are struggling, who are saying, I'm not going to believe. I'm going to choose unbelief because I don't like the way God does things. God, I pray that you would awaken them. For if that is true, then suffering and death mean nothing. It's just over. And there is no hope whatsoever. 
the evil one has crushed them if they believe that is true. But Lord, we know that you will ultimately crush evil. Though he seeks to crush mankind, he may bruise us, he may even take us from this earth, but we can rest in the fact that you are God and that salvation alone is in you and that real life will really begin when we are ultimately with you. So much that you will create a perfect earth in which all of us can dwell and live in complete harmony and joy. But until that day, we are here. And what we do here, the decision that we make of how to respond to you, God, what to do with your grace, has everything to do with what we will experience for eternity. So I pray, Lord, for anyone who doesn't know you, that today they would come, though struggling, and receive your grace and your mercy. Receive the great salvation that you have provided. And until that time, Lord, we will, we will worship and we will trust. If you've never trusted Christ, if you've never come to that place where you recognize I'm a sinner and I can't figure it out and I need God's forgiveness, I need to give Him control, I want to invite you to do that right now. Confess to Him that you are a sinner. Confess to Him that you need Him, that you need His salvation. Invite Him to come in and ask Him to forgive you of your sins and to become Lord of your life. It doesn't mean you understand everything, that you can give all the answers, but it means that you're giving Him all of your life. That you're putting your trust squarely upon the shoulders of the wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. And you're trusting Him for your grace and your forgiveness and your salvation.